because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Fort Wayne Mad Ants NBA G League head coach Tom Hankins to the Basketball Podcast. Hankins is coached at the high school and college level, having been a Division I assistant coach at Oral Roberts in Southern Illinois prior to becoming the head coach at the University of Central Oklahoma. Teams he was associated with had six 20-win seasons, three NCAA tournament appearances, and two NIT appearances. In 2019, Hankins was hired by the Indiana Pacers to serve as the assistant player development coach, followed by the next year becoming the G League head coach. Tom, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me. So talk to us a little bit. College coach, into the pros, one quick year with the Pacers, and then another opportunity to be a head coach again. Pretty good route for you as a head coach? Yeah, it's it's been it's different than most. Like most every profession, it's all about who you know, right? So I coached college basketball for 25 years, Division One assistant for a while, for a long time, I'm head coach at Division Two. But Kevin Pritchard, who's the president of the Pacers, he and I were high school teammates. He'd offered me a couple jobs when he was in Portland years ago. And I turned my kids were little and didn't want to travel that much and move. But anyway, so finally reached out to him when I was at this division at the University of Central Oklahoma and just thinking of hope maybe I could get, transition to something in a few years. And about four or five weeks later, he offered me a job as a player development coach on on Nate McMillan's staff. And then we had some turnover here. I've been here four years with the Pacers. I've worked for three different head coaches. So Nate McMillan was let go at the end of that year, and then and Nate Bjorken came in, and that's was the year after COVID. And anyway, the G League job was open, and I got it. And it's been—I can't tell you how much fun it's. I've never had so much fun coaching basketball in my life. It's crazy, wild world of G League, which I'm sure you've heard some about it, but or a lot about it. But I love going to work every day. That's great. And we'll talk a little bit more about the wild world of the G League, but maybe first from the perspective of moving from a college coach into the NBA G League, what type of experience do you feel was most valuable from your college coaching career that helps you now? Wow. Maybe all the different levels that I coached at as far as I coached, I was junior college coach, division two coach, and then the mid-major stuff. I so adapting to those different levels. The player evaluation, not for all that time that I was in college, I was, my main job was recruiting. So I was evaluating, creating relationships and actual sales as more than actual coaching. And so then when you get to the professional level, there's a tremendous amount of coaching going on. Don't get me wrong. But the, I would think, I would say the most important thing is just player relationships. It's just a different, it's just a different world than college basketball as far as dealing with professionals on a daily basis and the motive you don't have to motivate as much these guys especially in the g league they're all trying to get to that next level they're all trying to make a big check so there's not as much motivation but yeah but just the ability to get along with these guys is the most important thing in talking to other g league head coaches in particular a lot of them refer to it as a little bit of pure coaching in the sense that in the nba you don't necessarily get to run as many practices or as many development sessions 
And then in college, as you already alluded to, you're doing a lot of things outside of coaching. Whereas in G League, you get to focus more on coaching and development. Is that true to word? It is true to it is true to word. There's not as many practices as you would think. When once we basically once we get into January, we may have one practice a week. But there is a lot of development. That's a team practice. But we do have you have development sessions before every game, and then even on days off, guys will come in and get some development, get a half hour, forty five minute workout where you have the opportunity to put them through development. And so yeah, and that's what our goal is. We're not as as G League coaches, I'm told all the time, it's winning is not the most important thing for the Mad Ants, for the Indiana Pacers. Getting Kendall Brown to become a legitimate 3 and D wing for the Pacers, that's the goal, and, and all the rest of the guys. Certainly other coaches have mentioned that, the focus on development, particularly the players that have a future in the NBA. Before we go there a little bit, I'd say another part, one I really enjoy watching your team play and it strikes me a little bit that you've had all these opportunities and all these experiences through your career to be able to coach both team strategy and work on developing variable players. And that has to have a benefit to you as a coach at this level, doesn't it? Yes, it, it does. And at the end of the day, when you're trying to win games, no matter what level, it's a team that's together the most is most likely going to win. And that's a man, it's almost impossible thing to do in the G League because your roster is so transit so it's ever-changing and it can change from shoot around in the afternoon and it can be a different roster by the time the game starts you can lose two two starters or add two starters or go from 11 guys to seven guys and or vice versa so yeah you we're i'm constantly talking we're constantly talking about playing together about about playing for each other and again it goes against the mindset of the players because they're there to make more money and a lot of them think that they had they need to score to, to get there and so there's a constant battle but it's just finding different ways to express that and constantly reiterating it in timeouts at halftime end of quarters it's but you have to figure out how to do it in different ways is that one of the biggest challenges like players trying to score their way out of the g league but the reality is most of them will not be filling those type of roles in the nba will they and that's the hardest sell to these guys because a lot of them were great scorers in college, really good scorers in high school, really good scorers in college. And then and their role in, in the NBA is going to be a stay in front of your guy and make open shots and be a great defender, you know, the best defender and rebounder or creator you can be. Yeah, that's a constant. It's just getting them to learn that. It's just, yeah, it is a constant battle. But and then once they get into the game, the competitive juices start flowing. They're going to go back to what they've known their entire career a lot of times. So it takes time to, de- to develop that change of mindset. So, yeah, it is something that you battle daily. And you mentioned, obviously, winning, maybe not the most important thing or not the bottom line. But, of course, winning and competitive mindset does matter. So talk to us about setting up your team for victories while simultaneously expanding the player's skill set. And that is a hard balance, isn't it? Yeah, it's a real hard balance. My first year coaching the Mad Ants, what a, it was an unbelievable learning experience. But it was we it was the year after the NBA had their bubble, the G League had a bubble. We played 15 games in seven weeks in Orlando at Disney, and man, it was a it was a, so fun. It's a great setting, and it was nothing but basketball for seven. We had a, we went there to quarantine for I don't know three or four days or a week, 
And then we had a week-long training camp and every team in the G League's there. I think there were 16 teams that year. And we, and then you stayed and played a lot of games. But my point I'm trying to make is that my roster was, it didn't fluctuate like it usually does. We were all there quarantined. They could, the Pacers could pull players out, but once they pulled them out, they couldn't put anybody back in. So we started with, I think, 14, 13 or 14 players. And I had three guys on my team that I was told I needed to play them 25 minutes a game. And they weren't necessarily our best players. Make this story even longer. There's usually 30 teams in the G League this season because of the quarantine, because of COVID. There were only 16 teams. We Every team was able to pick up better players. So the, the level of play in the G League that year was probably as best it's ever been and will be for a long time just because it was watered down a bit or there weren't, weren't as many teams. We had, I had 13, 14 guys who could really play. Guys who, O'Shea Brissett, who is now in the NBA, he, he was having to come off the bench for me to start the, se- the season. He's by far our best player, but I've got to play some rookies 25 minutes a game. And so trying to figure out we're gonna, where are we going to get these guys these, 20, these minutes and then at the end of the game have our best lineup in there. It was not easy. But we also have an analytics department here with the Pacers, and, and one of those guys is dedicated to the Mad Ants. And so we would call this guy on a daily basis and say, all right, here's what we have tonight. Who needs to play this minutes hurt? Someone, here's our rotations. What do you think? And he would put together a, a rotation for us, substitution rotation for us. And we would, it would just give us some really good, just really good options to go with. And he would say, hey, when you're going to have this lineup in the game, you're not going to be great in transition. Your, your transition defense is not going to be great. Or this lineup here is not going to be a great rebounding lineup. But it would all, but it'd give it a parameter to when to maximize our lineup. So it's really interesting, really fun, and something to learn, and, and just a great experience. Yeah, great experience, no doubt. And w- what is the value of having you as multiple years as the G League head coach? Because you mentioned transient nature of the players. Often it's transient nature of the coach in the G League as well. So there's got to be a value to you having done multiple seasons in the G League, not just for you, but for your organization as well. Yeah, I think the main, that's a really good point. Good question. I think the main advantage of coaching the, the G League for a number of years is, I since so, so I, this will be coming up my third year with Rick Carlisle as the head coach. And he allows me to be at training camp, go through his training camp, help them out in practice. And then I'm at every practice that I can be. And I'm in the locker room for home games, just hearing pregame and halftime. So being here multiple years helps me learn how they run things and be able to teach them. Not just, it's a must that we have the terminology, we have the same terminology that they have. But then to watch him and his coaching staff with all their adjustments, uh, really with the verbiage they use before games, at halftime, how they teach, all that stuff is. We try and duplicate it with the Mad Ants. And so just to make, we want to make the transition from the G League to the NBA for players as seamless as possible. So, so language obviously is a part of it. A little bit about how you prepare them for games is a part of it. What are some other things that maybe we're not thinking about that are a part of that transition? Even our player development that we do before games, we try and duplicate, we try and copy the best we can what they do, our practice, my practice plans, how I run a practice. I try to make it as as similar to theirs as I can. Sometimes we have seven guys at practice and they'll have 15. So it's, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to go five on five. We don't have enough, but we try and make it 
the practice the same. We can't really travel the same the way they do, but we do try and meet at the same times they meet. And really, like you said, the verbiage, I, that's what I, I, when I have new assistants almost every year and they're required or not required, what I want them to come in here and Coach Carlisle lets them come to training camp. And they're, what I want them to do is come to training camp and learn the verbiage and the terminology so that we can, when, once we go to training camp, we'll be all, all be on the same page. It's great stuff. It's fascinating to see how the two programs are connected. And you mentioned a player like O'Shea, like that's one of the reasons he's able to go back and forth during some of those two-way years and then develop to that point as well. Talk to us a little bit about the player development perspective, having both been a player development coach in the NBA and now obviously with a player development focus here. What do you think are the most essential things for a player to be able to develop to an NBA level? Uh, every player is different. Every player needs something different. Some of it's just like real young guys. I mentioned Kendall Brown earlier. He comes to us. He's 19 years old and won't turn. He didn't turn 20 until I think May of this year. So we play this whole rookie season as a two-way player at 19. He just needs, the main thing he needs is minutes and he needs reps in live situations. He needs to, to make a lot of mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And then once, once you get him through a bunch of minutes and a bunch of games, then you can figure out a better plan for him. All right. What does he, what does he lack? What does he really need to, what are his strengths and weaknesses? But a lot of times you don't know that until you play a bunch of games and then other guys, you just know right from the beginning, all right, this guy is a jump shot away from being a three and D wing. He just, all, we just, we need to get him reps and on catch and shoots and shooting on the move. And so then some guys guard point guards may, they may, may, excuse me, they may need to learn their pick and roll reads better. And then the one <laughs> universal thing that they all need to work, like do is be better defenders defending in the, Professional basketball, G League, NBA is way different than defending in college. We have guys coming here all the time that are that want to try and jump over and take charges, and they just don't call that. It's just a way they don't call it as much. They still call it, but not nearly as much. It's just a so much more physical game on both sides of the ball. That's one thing that a lot of guys. It takes them a couple of months to to get used to the physicality, when say, especially if they're one or two and done players out of college and then and then coming in to 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 the G League or the NBA trying to shoulder hits how to body people up defensively how to and stay in front verticality is a big what probably one of the greatest rule changes of all time I think I love it but getting those guys knowing when to to that they can go vertical and not get called for a foul and change a shot even though they're not they don't have to be seven feet tall to do that just those little nuances just but again it's Every player is different. I had an NBA coach explain it to me once, for example, with a closeout. The difference is in college, you're taught all these technical details. And in the NBA or G League, you're focused on the tactic of the closeout, closing out short, closing out long, and just more depth in terms of that, where the decision is more important than the skill. Is that similar to a lot of things defensively that you find? Yeah. I mean, it, it, in this, at this level, you can't take away everything. So here's what we're gonna here's what we're gonna try and take away. Here's where we're gonna send them, and when we send them this way, this is where everyone needs to be because we know that's where they're gonna go. So yes, it's closeouts are there's. I couldn't believe it when I coached college for 25 years. I get here and Dan Burke is the defensive coordinator for the Pacers at the time, who's a, a legend in the NBA. 
teaching closeouts where you don't chop your feet. Mm-hmm. And that's all I've known my entire life. And I have not turned, and that's all I've heard since for three different coaches, you don't chop your feet. You just get out there as fast as you can and you stay in front or cinema or try and be as directional as you can. Yeah. A lot of things that you control in college, you don't need to control it in the NBA and probably don't need to control it in college. So I am curious though, if you did go back to high school coaching or college coaching, like you've done previously, what are maybe one or two things that you would take back and say, oh, I would do this now. You mentioned not chopping your feet on closeouts. Are there anything else that stands out that would help coaches understand? Now that I've coached at this level for a couple of years, number, the mo- number one thing is spacing. Use of the corners in college basketball. Now, th- I get it. If you don't have great shooters and you stick them in the corner, they're not going to guard them anyway. But I would definitely use the corners a lot more, put my shooters in the corners, and I would try. I would play a lot more pick and roll. And then I think I would, I, I think I would defend a little bit differently. I would have multiple pick and roll coverages like we do at this level. And when I was coaching, we all, we just, it was, I worked for Scott Sutton, who's an Eddie Sutton guy. And we would just hard hedge everything, no matter how big or slow our bigs were. I would have multiple pick and roll coverages. And I think I would switch more defensively than I did when I was coaching college. What's your rationale behind switching more? I always thought of switching as it obviously saves time a little bit too. So you can focus on developing more of the conceptual side of offense and different things like that. But what are some of your rationale behind switching? I just don't think people know how to attack it very well. I think you can, I think you can, college teams are really, a lot of them are just used to running their sets and, and basically being on tracks where they know where they're going and, and they start switching. And now it becomes a read game, read-oriented game. And I don't know that reads, read, that's one, one of the things that the Coach Carlisle and his staff, they're extremely creative, but they teach and work on reads daily, all summer, all season long. They're working on reads, attacking closeouts and all the, all the various reads. But I think switching would cause people in college a lot of problems just because they're not, it's just something that, that is not taught. I agree. And the thing that stands out is a lot of college is based on this game model where it's, as you said, the run the play and the play is the solution. Whereas in the NBA, a lot of it is conceptual where it's, again, a basketball decision supersedes a basketball play. So talk to us a little bit about building conceptual players, which is so important for a professional player. The difference is the big difference is that players are so much better at this. I mean, I was I've been to some G League games. I went to a couple of Mark Dagnall practices when he was coaching Oklahoma City. You know, they're blue, their G League team. And I didn't get it until I got here and started watching it. And just we, you can space the, the rules are different, so you can space the floor better. But the players, the shooting is so much better. So you can flip. just teaching those reads and learning those conceptual reads is a lot easier just because there's more space. But there is a progression that we go through. And again, I'm, I steal it all from from Coach Carlisle and his crew, and we just start with baby steps. But the other thing that's a big difference between college and professional is these guys don't need a ton of reps. You rep them, you give them reps one or two days in a row, and they've got it, and then you can move on. And so your practices are a lot, the pace of your practice is a lot faster. The information that you're giving, the amount of things that you can get to in one practice or in three, in two or three days, if you have three days in a row to, to get stuff in, is amazing. And they take it straight to the floor 
I guess an example I can give is Gabe York, who was a phenomenal player for us the last two years. We would talk to him about reads in in shoot around in the morning or in pregame player development. And he would take that to the game that night. It's I never saw anything like that in college where guys could pick things up and translate it so quickly as it is here. It's such a great example and a great point, obviously. Better players, but less weaknesses that you have to do things within this game model to be able to hide some of those weaknesses as well. And you mentioned this progressions. Can you share some of those progressions? For example, you mentioned attacking closeouts. What are some progressions in terms of developing the reads and the decisions off of attacking closeouts? So, you know, we're always, I talked about playing out of the corners. So we are constantly running guys to the corner, don't want to kick ahead pass to the corner, and we're reading that closeout, whether it's a catch and shoot or a go and catch or a jab and a, base, a, a middle drive or a baseline drive. And then from there, making that read, once you get past your man, okay, what's the low man doing? What's the weak side doing? Where are our cutters coming from? We like to kill cut on a baseline drive. We like to kill cut from the opposite 45. And so that, that's what day one of practice, running to the corners, driving baseline, making that read on the kill cut or the drift pass. And again, that's one day and, that, and they've got it. And then after that, it's driving from the 45. It's, the game is really played a lot in the slot. There's slot drives. Again, it's, there's so much spacing. The, corner, the corners are filled. So there's a lot of, a ton of drives from the slot. So putting the defense in a disadvantage on slot drives. Who's cutting? Say it's a slot drive and he's going to the baseline. We, we, at the beginning, we make it an automatic where the, ba- where the opposite baseline is cutting. But then eventually we work into it to where it's a read, where the ba- where the baseline's cutting or the opposite 45 is cutting. Uh, and that's just a progression buildup that we do. That's uh, great stuff. Great example to be able to share. And you also mentioned this concept of doing less reps. I'm curious if reflecting on your college coaching career or in general about college coaching, do you feel that sometimes we do too many reps of the same thing over and over again, rather than, again, progressing them with reads or different things like that? I know I'm guilty of it. I don't know about any anybody else, <laughs> <laughs> but I was extremely guilty of it and trying to get, get it perfect. And I really was guilty of not doing a great evaluation of my players and expecting them to be able to stay in front of their guy when it physically, they just weren't, they just, some of them just weren't there. So instead of drilling it over and over to try and get them there, let's play to a direction and everyone be on the same page and know that this, if they're going to drive, this is the way they're going and here's how we're going to rotate. So I mean, another takeaway from so many coaches like yourself on the podcast that have coached at the professional level is the individuality in which you approach coaching is that the individual focus is much more there. For example, there's individual differences as you just referred somewhat in terms of closeouts. Certain players can close out different than other players. Is that another takeaway for all of us to be able to think a little bit differently about how we approach coaching? No question about it. I think I just listened to your podcast this, today with Joe Crispin. That, that was very good. That, guy, that was impressive. I'm, I'm going to read his book, actually, about, just about his outside-the-box thinking on the whole game and what he learned growing up. And, and, um, and think about that. Know. He took that from a player who had played for, I think, 20-plus different coaches over his lifetime in professional sports. So it's such a fascinating approach, isn't it? Where he said, this never helped me as a player, so why would I do it as a coach? Yeah, 
Yeah, he's a very bright guy and well thought and well spoken. And that was a that was really good to listen to. I'm excited to to dive into it even more. Can we individualize our approach to players even more then in terms of that type of thing? Yeah, I you definitely I, I, that's what I learned. Watching Nate McMillan that first year, I was amazed at how he's a great manager of professional players, number one. I played in the NBA for a long time and his whole life, adult life's been in the NBA. And so I learned a lot just sitting back and watching him, how he every day just slid around the weight room, individually grabbing guys individually and talking to them in different ways. And the same with Coach Carlisle. He'll, he's awesome at kind of getting to know the player one-on-one. And then when it's time to teach, when it's time to for them to listen, he has a great relationship with them, but he also knows how they learn and how they listen and it but it's something that you have to develop it takes time so then that's my that's what i do now it's we're going to have my staff we're going to have our staff meeting before practice but we're going to end that meeting so i can get down to when the guys are in the weight room and go around and touch every one of them and see how they're doing and not really talk basketball but just get to know them more earn some trust joke around bring a smile set a positive tone every day and again, that's just what I've picked up here last. I just remember being in college and walking down the floor and pissed off. And because we just got beat the night before, two days ago, and wanting to, all right, we're going to punish these guys. And that's, you don't do, we don't do that here. We don't do that anymore. That's to me, if I were to go back to college, I would not be that way. Hey, coach, a brief time out from the podcast to bring you the Analytics Minute sponsored by Hoopsalytics. Do you know which players should be taking what kind of shots? An analytics system like Hoopsalytics can help your team make better shot selection decisions. You can track every kind of shot each player takes, where the shots come from, rate the shot quality, track if the shot was contested, and see the results. For example, see which players are taking mid-range floaters and measure the results versus catch-and-shoot jumpers. As an added bonus, Hoopsalytics shot charts are fully interactive, so you can filter by shot distance, shot type, or even specific areas of the floor. Then watch video clips of all those shots or see the points per shot. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today to learn more and start analyzing your games for free. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. And you mentioned this concept when we talked just privately before the podcast about building relationships and managing relationships. And that's such a part of it. So I want you to expand on that a little bit. But the point I just want to emphasize for coaches is your part about connecting with players every day about something not to do with basketball. Just this concept of be able to maximize their belonging, which is such an important part of coaching. But uh, can you expand a little bit on how you manage the relationships with your players? It's really what what we just talked about. But we'll also I'll also I've, I've we've gone and grabbed a beer after a game with different guys or dinner or lunch or coffee and just got to know them more on an individual level. And these guys are older. They're professionals. I learn more from them, I think, than they learn from me. And it, and really, it's an interesting story. When my first year here, oh, gosh, I can't remember this name right now. Anyway, it, I was just told by one of, the old, one of the coaches, hey, you will learn more from your players than you will from all these. And he was completely, he was exactly right. My first year here, I was, I sat behind the bench for most of the play, most of the Pacer games, got to travel with them. And would just watch T.J. McConnell come off the floor to a timeout and just start 
talking to the entire all everybody that he's on the floor with. And I'm just going, what is he talking about? And that the more I'm around him, the more I, and then I'd ask him about it and learn from that. And then getting into the G League and coaching guys who played six and seven years professionally and just talking with them and learning. Not really answering your question, just giving you some insight on 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 how I've done it. But yeah, well, just, just spinning. Yeah. I mean, that, that example alone, I think, is a disconnect for fans and media about the role of the player and the ability of the player to be able to communicate and help the team. And almost, I think, media and fans look at that as a weakness. And certainly Joe Mazzulla and different coaches were getting criticized for players having a voice. And it doesn't make sense, does it, when you're in the professional ranks? Because these players know so much and have had so many experiences that they can not only help you, they can help each other. Yeah, no doubt about it. My approach to them is, what do you think about this when I want to try and change something or add something? Even at halftime, there's been halftimes where we go in there and the side pick and roll is really giving us a problem. All right. We're, what's the adjustment? Number one is, is, do we need to adjust it or do we just need to get better at what we're, how we're trying to do it? And that's a discussion that we have. And then most of the time, they'll come to the decision on their own and I'll help them along the way. There's been there's just been a handful of times where I have to step in and say, all right, here's how we're going to do it. But most of the time through talking to them and hearing what they're seeing and what they're feeling out there and their vast experience, we come to a conclusion and figure out how to get it done. That's great. It's almost more important that they believe in what you're going to do than obviously you telling them what to do in terms of empowering them and then that self-efficacy or that belief that it's going to work. Take us through that a little bit deeper than when you approach them, say, at halftime about a possible adjustment, are there multiple voices in the room? Are there generally one or two voices in the room? And then how do you bring that back to the decision? It, there's generally one or two. It just depends on the makeup of your team. And again, that's the G League. Now, we've had guys come in the, at midseason and they want a voice because they've had, they're used to having a voice. And then all of a sudden, they're, they're talking in trying to help us make decisions. And sometimes it goes over well. Sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't. It takes time for those guys to earn their place and earn their voice. What was the second part of your question? Just how do you uh, consolidate all the answers and then come up with the final decision? A lot of times it just works works itself out. Now there there's some arguments, and I'm I don't I'm fine with that. Some guys want to do it this way. Some guys want to do it that way. And I'll make I'll usually make a suggestion and see if we can come to something. If and if not, then I have to put my foot down and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And we have, I actually this year, more than any year, I had, we had the discussion of, look, it doesn't really matter how we do it. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we're all doing it the same way and we're all doing it with great effort. And they get that. They understand that. And once that's said, then most of the time we're all on the same page and, and we get it fixed. You mentioned the transient nature of players going back and forth or different players within your roster and then leaving your roster. Is that something that's important for you to normalize as a coach for players? Like someone who's with you all year working hard, never gets a call up versus a player going back and forth and then coming to you and then having a massive role in their short time with you. Is that a hard process to be able to communicate? It is a difficult process to communicate, but they all know that's part of it. And that's the part of the player management that we talked about earlier. The uh, having the one-on-ones with is a lot of times the guys who've been playing great all year long. They haven't get a gut, haven't gotten a call up. They see other people in their position 
that they think they're better than that are getting call-ups. And so they're not feeling great. They're not, they're down They're When am I going to get my, so you have to massage that and talk to them and encourage them and be there for them and try and help them along the way. And then just the turbulence of this job is it's crazy, but it's, again, it's so fun. Again, you don't know how many guys you're going to have on Saturday night. I can't tell you how many times, probably five times this year on Saturday morning before a game, I'd tell, we'd, I'd meet with my staff and I'd say, guys, it's too quiet. Something's going to happen. Something. And nine times out of 10, there's a phone call or somebody's sick or somebody, Tyrese Halliburton, twisted an ankle, tweaked an ankle. So now our point guard's gone. Or one game this year, we lost both point guards in the first half. And so now, and we started the game with eight players. So now we're down to six and no point guards. <laughs> Just making those adjustments is, it, that's, it's really enjoyable. It's frustrating at times, but it's, it's really cool. Yeah. And people outside of coaching, maybe not understand that could actually be fun. And I do value that as a coach, as a former coach, that that was part of the fun was trying to figure out solutions and we're humans. So we love solving problems, don't we? Love it. Absolutely love it. We In that specific scenario right there, we had both point guards, Eli Brooks, break, basically break an ankle. John Stockton or David Stockton, I think, broke a nose. And in our next five games, we have no point guard. We have eight, seven or eight players and no point guard. And Justin Anderson had to play the point for us for a while. Gabe York had to step in some and just trying to get everybody together and it was a lot of fun we actually i think we we may have won one or two of those five games so fun i shared it with you i've shared it on twitter some of the play that i took from you and shared publicly really simple stuff in a lot of ways the complexity of it being the decision making part of it so first let's start before we talk about the play it was basically a horns five out type of action where you enter and then there's multiple decisions and multiple reads off of really just a cut or a respacing type of situation. But before we even get to that, just talk to us about play calling and name call, na- calling plays by certain names or families of plays, whatever they may be. What are some things that you can share with us to give us insights in terms of how we should name plays? So I, we use the same calls that, that Coach Carlisle uses, and I think he's on the same page with a lot of coaches. He wants one syllable, short, one syllable, strong, sounding names so get is i think the action that that you're and then have the body parts nose ear wrist or and then and you know, just but i don't have any philosophy on it i just steal it all from him <laughs> what they do and that, that's kind of what i did with coach mcmillan and and well in nate bjorken so the thing well. that stood, the thing that stood about this get play was that it seemed to be sequencing and i'm sure it was somewhat read based as well but the way it worked is, again, there was different entries to essentially the same play. So it looked, essentially, I'm guessing you just, it's one play, but you can just enter different ways. And then right. over different games, there was different entries, so it would look a little bit different. But in, in rally, it's a really simple action, isn't it? Very simple. And that's the beauty of this level. You, it, it just takes simple actions to put your three best players on the floor in, in action when you can and they know how to play they know how to they they can figure it out and then once the defense guard defends it this way they know all right they're defending it this way so now we need to counter it this way so yeah that's that was just that's a real simple 
we're just trying to get our best player of the ball. It was usually Gabe York or whoever we had at two, trying to get him in middle pick and roll action. Um, and then we 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 would hit him coming off the pin down, and, and that didn't work. We'd throw it to the big and run a Rubio cut off of that, and we could hand that off and get a, a good look. We get we get that all quite a bit. And then if the Rubio wasn't there, then that then the big and the two if small would play up with an uphill DH show, and then we'd have a jam screen set in for the one. Sometimes a I think it's pretty common action. The <laughs> Rubio is essentially a passing cut off of a get. And then what I loved about it is that if they, if you, and I couldn't believe how many times you actually got that to a certain extent, but I get it. It's spacing and it came off of unpredictable entry type of situations. But the other part that was beautiful off of it, and I can't remember your terminology you just shared, but if you don't give it to that player, it was essentially a dribble handoff to the top or a pass and ball screen to the top, which just created a great flow with great space because that cutter was taking away a help defender. Take us through that part of it that uh, essentially you're running middle ball screen, but you're running it off of actions that usually don't lead into a middle ball screen. Right. It's just, I think it's, it's the five setting the pin down in, in the middle of the floor with the two coming off, coming off to the basically to the left slot if the two's not open or it's really the point guards read if, if he thinks the two is covered then he's going to throw it to the big flashing who set the he set the he set the pin but he's flashing to the elbow he's going to he's going the, the point guard's going to hit the five flash into the elbow and he's going to run that rubio cut which is basically a a, a a basket cut just for basically a give and go and then if the big can't give it to him there at the elbow on the give and go, that he's going to dribble uphill to the two who's in, and again, in the left slot. And that turns into middle pick and roll. Sometimes you get back screen, you get back cuts out of that. And then the big can even, he, if they're covering the two real tight, he can fake the handoff and then he'll get to the second action, which is the left corner, whoever's in the left corner coming out for a dribble handoff on that side. Again, it sounds more complicated when we talk about it. It's very <laughs> simple. I will post it on Twitter the week your podcast comes out. So go just go through at B-Ball Immersion Twitter and you can see it that week. But uh, again, the beautiful thing was the decision making and the ability to be able to get to a direct action with your three best players. And to me, that's what defines a lot of professional basketball, isn't it? Getting it to a direct action with your best players. Exactly. And let, letting them play the game. You know, when you have a great point guard, the Pacers have Tyrese Halliburton and late game this year, it was just, it was, let, let's get it to Tyrese. Let's get him in middle pick and roll. He is the master of the jump pass. He can, he leaves his feet and something you're taught your whole life. And he, he leaves his feet and makes then he makes the right decision. 99% of the time. It's amazing. I've been, I was amazed all year watching him because about the decision-making that he has. But again, so you're getting your best player in some type of action and letting him go to work. It's another great example of the players teaching us a lot of these old kind of ways we thought about the game of don't leave your feet to pass. I can't believe anyone believes that anymore because most good players leave their feet all the time to pass and are more effective doing it, especially if they have the freedom to do it. Are there any other things like that that stand out to you that maybe we used to believe, but now I'm watching players it just doesn't make sense for players. I think you guys, with Crispin, you guys talk shot selection. Guys, are they're just such good shooters that the good shot, bad shot, is it's just different. It's changed. And I will say this, in, in the difference in professional and college basketball, every possession is so important. 
And in college basketball coaches' defense, every possession is so important. And so we've had guys in for pre-draft workouts the last three weeks here in, in Indianapolis and for the, for the draft coming up this week. And there's some guys who didn't shoot many threes in college at all. And that was the that's their question on, on are they, can they shoot it? They come in here and they can shoot it. They're pretty good shooters. They're not bad, but they've attempted 12 threes this year or not very many. But that, in, in my point of view, that's why. They're also good enough they can go get a better shot or what they've been told is a better shot. But there's just those possessions are so important that they're not going to take the chance. And then once once you get to the to this level, it's not that every point there's just so many more possessions, you know. And it's almost it's a lot of times it's to the point where we have to tell these guys in pre draft workouts you have to shoot that. You're catching it one step outside the line on the wing, and you're and it's a slow closeout. You have got to shoot that thing, and if you make it. You're going to make a lot of money, but that's a shot that nine times out of 10, it needs to go up. It, it's a great example. The rules are different, obviously, as you already talked about, the quality of players are different. And then the number of possessions, which is such a huge part of the game in terms of that. And were you really analytically oriented in your last few years in college? And then obviously, I assume you've gone to a bit of another level here in the professional level. Yes, I was not analytically oriented in, in, in college at all. Just through my years at Oral Roberts, we had some great mid-range scores and post-up, great post-up. I was always a four-out one in. I prided myself on being able to teach guys how to score in the post and score over the top of people from four and five feet. And then I and so it was a lot. But when I first got here, <laughs> when I first got here, we talked about terminology number one. I was in, I was fortunate enough to be in all the coaching, coaching meetings, planning meetings for training camp and pacer season. And I was at practice every day and they would, these guys were speaking Chinese. I didn't know, you talking about all the terminology I used earlier. I had no idea what they were saying for two months. And I just was quiet and asked questions to the video coordinator and different things. But, but also, but then the analytics was all new as well. I've learned a lot. It was a lot more easy to use analytics for us when we were, when our roster was steady, when we were in the bubble that year and we had the same roster. It, it changes so much now. It's not as easy to use it. We're still, we still emphasize rim, free throws, rim, and threes, but we just can't emphasize it much because it's just, it changes. Our roster changes so drastically or dramatically. If you're going back to college or you're going back to high school coaching, is there anything that stands out analytically that you would say, this would be very valuable to you. The line, the lineups would be very valuable. One thing I, I think an adjustment that we made this year that I think I would study a lot more if I went to college, and I'm going to study it a lot more this last year. But so this year we we needed we came down to the last five games of the season. We needed all five. We need to win all five to make the playoffs. And um, we were going to play Long Island, who was the best team in the entire league. That was where we were starting our five game, last five games of the season. And they're a great transition team. And we'd never really, we had a crash scheme, rebounding scheme. You know, we, it's the same thing that the Pacers do, but we just made an adjustment and said, we are not rebounding. We are, we're not offensive. We're not seeing no one on the offensive glass. We're getting back every time. 
And we and that I think that was a big reason that we went on this five game run and won all five games and went to the playoffs. Now is that the best thing to do for every team? Absolutely not. The team that won the G League championship two years ago, RGV, their crash scheme was they're going to crash all five every time, and they're going to lead the team and lead the league in offensive rebounding, and they did. And they had great offensive rebounders, and they were almost unstoppable. And you know, excellent team. They ended up winning the whole thing. Analytically, I would study offensive rebounding a lot more if I went back to college. Crash scheme. And then that's a really good question because it's so clogged up. Rim attempts is it's just not easy. I would try and play a lot more five out because I was always a post, always played four around one, but I would definitely try and play more five out and free up the rim so you can get more rim attempts. But that's just off the top of my head. That's what analytically I got to change. Yeah, it's really neat. Even in presenting your concept of offensive rebounding, you go both ways with both those perspectives that both right. of them have worked. And I know that's a little bit of a conflict at the professional level, because again, even though a lot of the analytics departments seem to drive the philosophy that offensive rebounding is actually valuable, still aren't going to do it because you've got to send stars to the offensive boards. And that changes right. everything, doesn't it? Having a star. You know, <laughs> yeah, it does change everything. <laughs> and that's the deal with RGV when they want it. I look, you look at the makeup of their roster, and they had big Gaudeshawn Nicks and Traveling Queen and a big, and what's it, Kevin Gelly had big physical athletic players that were decent shooters, but not great shoot, but they could all re- offensive rebound. And so they knew there was ultimate freedom to shoot the ball. There was really not bad, good shot, bad shot, but they knew that they were all going to rebound it. Coach, a bit of a cliffhanger here as we start to wrap up this podcast. You mentioned you won your last five to make the playoffs. So can you take us through that kind of end of season? Yeah, it was, and it was a, what a fun time it was. But this is, this is wraps up the G League in a nutshell and how things work. So we had, we won the game in Long Island, beat the, beat the best team in the league. We win a couple of other games. I think, yeah, we beat Westchester, come home, win a game. And we've got to go to Delaware who has the second best record in, in the East. And we've got to win both of those games. Now they've already clinched, but we've got to win both of those games to get to, to make it to the playoffs. And we win the first game. And in our second game, this is how the G League works. In our second game, we had a player who was great. He was the MVP of the year before of, of the whole league. He gets kicked. We're down 12 in the second quarter, in the third quarter, middle of the third quarter. And he gets kicked out of the game. He threatens an official, gets kicked out of the game. And uh, and I'm like, I have no, I, I didn't know what he said. I don't know what he did. And talk to the official. And I'm thinking, oh, we're done. This is, this is guys are our leading scorer. Maybe their second leading scorer, 25 a game, what he averaged. And he gets kicked out of the game. And, one, and then Justin Anderson, who's a veteran for us, also, he's that's probably, he's a 23-point-a-game guy. He just comes up, says, Coach, we got it. We're good. We got it. And my, I just, okay, and faked it like I was trusting him. And we came back, won the game, and make the playoffs. And we're all celebrating the locker room and then and thinking, okay, this is great. We're, we got a five-game win streak. We've got some momentum. We're going to go play this. We're going to go play the one seed on, our, on the east side. And then we find out that Trevlin Queen is suspended for the first playoff game. And it's two days later. We got we go we drive straight from Delaware to DC to play their team. 
And then, and then Justin Anderson, who was great for us the previous game, he gets kicked out of the game two minutes into the second quarter. And now we're down to eight guys. <laughs> and we don't, we end up losing that first round game, but that's just how volatile this thing is and, and how crazy it is. But it was a great run. It was a lot of fun. And I can't, I tell people all the time, I love going to work every day. I can tell, I can hear in your voice, I can hear in the passion that you have for coaching and being a part of that organization. And as well, I can hear in your voice when it comes to the challenges, which is what you've got to have. You got to have that attitude. And if there's any young coaches listening, listen to how Tom is approaching these challenges, because that is definitely the part of coaching. That is one of the hardest parts to master, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you can't, you just can't be emotional. My example to a lot of people, I don't know if, you, you're, if you're an Ozark fan, but my, I, you have to be Marty Bird. The, you've got a plan and somebody gets murdered and whatever, you're, you've got the cartel coming to kill you and you, can, you cannot have any emotional reaction. You just got to pivot and go to the next play, go to the, figure out what to do next and move on because those catastrophes are going to happen on a weekly basis. Absolutely. Tremendous advice and a great show as well. So coach, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing so much with us throughout this podcast. Yep. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. That was a lot of fun. Are you ready to take your coaching to the next level? Thousands and thousands of coaches have already benefited from basketball immersions membership community, and you can be next. Join us as an individual coach or take advantage of our exclusive pricing for staff or club members and unlock valuable learning resources with access to cutting-edge basketball and coaching concepts that will save you time and improve your coaching and your players' enjoyment of practices and games. Take advantage of this opportunity today. Go to www.basketballimmersion.com. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.